0: Welcome to the Passive Mobile Home Park Investing Podcast with your host, Andrew Keel. This is the podcast where you can get the education you need to invest 100% passively in the highly profitable niche of mobile home parks.
1: Welcome to the Passive Mobile Home Park Investing Podcast. This is your host, Andrew Keel. And today we have an amazing guest in Mr. Luke Degrassi. Luke Degrassi is the co-founder and Managing Principal of Pioneer Communities, where he is responsible for sourcing potential acquisitions, arranging debt financing, overseeing the firm's marketing and operational strategies, and syndicating equity through Pioneer's well-established network of capital partners. Luke, welcome to the show. Thanks, Andrew. How are you? Good, man. Let's dive right in, if you don't mind. Can you please start out by telling our listeners a little about your background and how you got into manufactured housing.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I'd love to. Um, so, my background was primarily in affordable multifamily housing in northern New Jersey. That's kind of where I got introduced to the industry. And from there, I transitioned over to the debt and equity side at a shop in Manhattan, which is where I currently reside now. And got introduced to manufactured housing communities, kind of inadvertently, not even directly. I had a colleague of mine who was working on a refinance for a property, uh, and this was, you know, a time in the market where you were getting probably about sixty-five percent leverage on a traditional bread and butter multifamily refinance in Manhattan. And this was a park in like Ohio, I want to say, or, or some market that I hadn't really played in before and somehow the sponsor was able to get like 80% leverage. And I was just kind of blown away that the banks were so willing to lend on an asset that I had never even heard of. And that was kind of where my ears perked up. And I was just like, all right, well, if the banks are lending on this, and they're lending on a traditional multifamily building in Manhattan, at like 65% leverage, um, there's got to be something there. So I struck a friendship uh, with my now business partner, Nick Hakim, and we kind of became friends. He worked at a private equity firm here in Manhattan, oversaw a portfolio of about 15, 16 buildings, and was kind of responsible for all things sourcing, management, turnaround, and then eventually dispositions. Uh, Him and I struck a friendship, and then about two years into that friendship, I left that company that I was at, and he left his company that he was at. We came together and we started looking at what we knew best, which was multifamily real estate. Uh, But given where we were in the market, given the cap rate compression that we were seeing around more traditional asset classes like multifamily, we eventually landed on manufactured housing communities. So we, we love manufactured housing communities for all the numerous reasons that most people do. But I would say that the main driver for us getting into that asset class was, was really timing. There were just no other investments. And we were looking at a lot of deals that really made sense at that time. And we felt strongly about the asset class. And once we toured our first park, uh, we were pretty much all in.
1: That's fantastic, man. And how long ago did you guys buy your first property? Because I think that was relatively recently, right?
0: It, it was, yeah. So that was kind of an interesting story too. Um, we spent the first, I'd say, nine to 12 months exclusively canvassing New York, given that we, we kind of knew that market, we had proximity to it. Uh, that was before the new rent laws went into effect in New York. So mm. we were under agreement on about 500 pads uh, around New York, and we ended up having to walk from all of them. Oh, so Man. we we had our first, you know, eight or nine months uh, with a nice little introduction to, to failure and to the importance of legislation in the markets. So we walked from all of those deals and essentially started our pipeline from square one, uh, which brought us to our first acquisition right outside of Savannah, Georgia, about five months later. So about uh, a year and a month ago, actually to the day. We, we closed on October 23rd of last year. Hey, on congrats, man. 170 units uh, in the Savannah MSA.
1: That's fantastic. And that's a great area. I love Savannah. I've been there several times. Kudos, man. Congrats on the anniversary. Thank you. Awesome. And what would you say is the the hardest part about the business? Because I, I believe you guys have how many how many lots now? It's two communities. You have one in Alabama. We, right? we
0: recently closed on yeah 175 units in northern Alabama, which brings
1: us to about 380 pads, give or take. That's fantastic, man. And what's yep. what's hardest about? you know the those projects you know uh, is it the value add with with infill is it is it rehabbing is it you know because i know you you guys similar to myself have spent a lot of time on site at those communities as i i'm a big fan of your instagram page there and i love watching the day-to-day you guys thank you. Getting your hands dirty and and making stuff happen but yeah, what do you you know, tell our listeners what has been the hardest part about running these for you guys? Yeah,
0: and and you know, the, the word hard is so subjective. Like it it so yeah, the, the hardest part I guess would be the management side, and two years ago, when we announced that we were getting into manufactured housing, a lot of the other operators were like, "All right, well, what are you doing for management?" And so, from the get that, we we knew that that was kind of going to be the area um, that would make or break a lot of deals, and it's probably where a lot of operators fall short. So we we've always taken a very hands-on management. Um, we take a very hands-on approach on on that deal in Savannah that we closed on that I was telling you about. We moved on site for three months, which is something similar to what you do and to what other operators do like Brian and Ian. And we wanted to really just immerse ourselves in the asset class, given that it was our first acquisition. So... We knew that you know there was a lot of carryover from the multifamily side, but we also weren't stupid or naive. And we knew that there were obviously a lot of eccentricities that were probably very specific in particular to manufactured housing. So we knew that the best way to do that um, and the best way for us to preserve the capital of our investors who were entrusting us with this first acquisition was to really not take it lightly and to just go down there and spend as much time as we could on site. So we did that and we lived in the back of the now office which we later found out was actually not totally legal because it is an office and you're not allowed to have beds in an office. <laughs> uh, we ended up getting in trouble for that, but we we bought two twin size beds, put them in the back of the office and just put up shop for three months. So I would say that those three months were pivotal in just learning about the asset and learning about the ins and outs of manufactured housing. So to, to answer your question, like Yes, that is, quote, unquote, the hardest part, I would say, of, of any deal. But I say that the, the word hard is subjective because I think most people don't want to be hands-on, you know, in the way that you run your deals and in the way that we run our deals as well. Um, so I think that's where the difficulty arises. I wouldn't say that the actual management and operations is difficult, per se. We, we actually enjoy it. I mean, I just got back from Huntsville, Um We I I flew into Huntsville on Saturday. The park that we bought in Alabama is in the Huntsville MSA, and you know there's really no more. There's nothing I look forward to more than going down there and being on site these days. It's it's incredible to see the asset get turned around, to see our business plan get implemented, to see the difference that we're making in the lives of our tenants. Um, to see the various different capital expenditure projects come along and then eventually see them through to completion. Um, so yes, it, it is certainly the most difficult part, I think, of, of successfully acquiring uh, a mobile home park, but it is also one of the most rewarding if it's done correctly.
1: Great. Yeah, I agree. I'll never forget, we painted a mural in one of our parks, like there's a huge concrete wall. And one of my business partners, his mom is an artist, and she just painted like a nice mural of, of a hill with some deer on it and a, and a sign that said, welcome home. Mm. And I'll never forget one of the residents came up and literally was crying because she said, this place, I've lived here for 18 years and 18 years, I would come home from work and I would just hate where I where I drove home to, you know, it yep. just had nothing pretty about it. But now she comes home every day and she sees that mural and it just changes and puts a smile on her face. So, Things like that that I know I've seen you guys have, you know, done a lot of capex projects from uh, your recent. I know you that swimming pool I saw was like, you know, I mean I know you had to. Did you guys tear it out? Is that what you did? Because I know it was full of dirt. Maybe you can elaborate on some of the different capex you've done in in two acquisitions. Um,
0: well, the, the park that we bought outside of Savannah, Savannah is an interesting market um, because most operators do look for the 100% tenant owned to home model. Um, we found out pretty quickly that if we were exclusively focused on those types of opportunities that we probably weren't gonna be transacting too frequently. So we got very comfortable. Thankfully, you know, we were able to get exposed to it early on because the deal in, in Savannah is actually a pretty heavy park owned home deal. So a lot of the capex on that acquisition was really just going in identifying units that uh, were not in a state of disrepair and that could benefit from you know some light capex uh, and turning those homes. So that that was really good for us, I think, because we were able to get comfortable with the Reno process. Um, the deal that we just closed in Northern Alabama, right outside of, of Huntsville. Um, doesn't have quite as many park-owned homes. That was actually uh, a very nice deal compared to the one in Savannah because it had more tenant-owned homes. So what we've been doing there, like you just alluded to, um, this one was was interesting um, because it, it's, it did have this, this swimming pool um, that I guess the previous owner, he caught tenants like partying in it. And it, instead of... You know shutting it down or just putting up a sign he decided to literally fill it in with a bunch of rocks and it was just a total mess when we acquired it so we were kind of scratching our heads we were like what do we do with this um you know do we open it back up do we do we put the pool back in the park um, and the consensus was even in talking to tenants that it was between a basketball court and a soccer field um, that was kind of what the kids thought that would you know, they they would get the most use out of. Um, so we are actually in the process now. I mean, I'll, I'll probably share pictures with you for for your uh, for your followers here, so they can kind of see what we're referencing. But it is pretty much ninety five percent to being a, a soccer field. So we're going to get posts set up, goals. Um, nice. We've got a large community down there that that loves playing soccer, and so we're excited to get the kids in there and keep them busy.
1: That's fantastic. I love that you guys do that and reinvest and. You know, I'm sure it'll add longevity to your tenant base because you know they they enjoy living there. Yeah, so what absolutely, Luke? What is your your business model? You know, uh, what's the ideal park look like? What what type of parks do you target? You know, it's it sounded like you prefer the tenant-owned home model, but you're okay with some park-owned homes. Uh, can you elaborate? You know, more on that. Yeah. Um,
0: you know, we, we actually, I would say we, we love the park owned home model. Um, we got really good at it in Savannah and we've turned, I mean, 20 or 25, 30 of those homes and we've converted them over to LTOs. So we've gotten really good at understanding exactly what each home is going to require, uh, getting comfortable with the market. And, you know, if you buy a part that's hundred percent park owned homes and the homes are in relatively good shape and there's a market for tenant-owned homes, that's really all upside. So we we don't mind deals where there are a, a large component of park-owned homes as long as those homes are in good shape. Um, so I would say that our ideal acquisition, um, there, there's got to be some scale for us, I'd say, to, to get interested. So we like to be you know, 75 to 100 and up. Um, both of these acquisitions that we transacted on were around 170 plus um, so bigger is better for us. Um, we're pretty much agnostic to utilities as long as they're in good working order. We, we don't really do wastewater treatment plants, but um, we're okay with private uh, septic and well. Uh, these two parks that we own are on city water and city sewer, which has been great. We're in the process of submetering one of them right now. Um, so our ideal acquisition is one where we can go in and like you said, get our hands dirty, take advantage of the fact that we're young, you know, we're not married. We don't have kids. We have the flexibility and the time to go down there. And, you know, I'm, I, like I said, I just got back on Saturday. I'll be flying back down at the beginning of December and my business partner, Nick, he'll be flying down December 1st, um, to the park in Savannah. So like, I mean, we're, we're back and forth pretty frequently, um, so we do like the hands-on approach and we'll probably continue doing that on on all of our future acquisitions
1: that's great what are the most important things passive investors need to look out for when investing into mobile home parks
0: as, as a passive investor um, I would probably want comfort in number one my basis i, I see I see a lot of deals right now trading um, at a basis that I just can't really make sense of. And I, I think you probably agree, you've seen a lot of new people come into the space and you know, by a lot of uh, all intensive purposes, I mean, we're, we're relatively new to the space, but I think that I would wanna be comfortable with the basis that the GP is going in at. And then I would also want to really understand the market and make sure that there is a demand for quality affordable housing in the market Um, I would want to understand the business plan and I would want to understand where the upside lies. I believe that, you know, right now, a lot of people are overpaying for these assets. And I I think that there are a lot of opportunities that we've passed on. And I'm kind of glad that we did because sometimes the best deal is the one that you don't do. And, you know, I'm confident that two acquisitions that we've closed on in the last year um, are both excellent deals, and we're excited to, to generate the returns that we've formaed. So I, I would really just kind of implore investors to make sure that you've done your due diligence on the market, on the operators, make sure that there's a proven track record, and make sure that the basis makes sense.
1: Awesome. Yeah, I agree. That's, uh, that's some great advice. Uh, would you mind explaining some of the the nuts and bolts of your you know value add components in this business? As mentioned before, we started recording. A lot of our listeners come from other asset classes, you mm-hmm. know, whether multifamily, self storage, or otherwise, and they're not familiar. They're interested in mobile home parks, but they're they're not familiar with the the value add in manufactured housing communities. Would you mind sharing a little bit about that?
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I can use. You know the, the park that we bought in Savannah is kind of a prime example, I would say, because a lot of these assets, um, you know, are, are mom and pop owned, so they're privately owned, and it's usually individuals who don't necessarily have a background in real estate and don't really have access to the type of capital that is needed and required to turn around these assets. So, you know, usually your your typical story on ownership is like. Grandfather built it or acquired it. You know, dad inherited it, and now you've got son and like three daughters who are operating it. Um, but you know, nowhere along the line was there any type of real estate knowledge passed down. Or so usually, like the situation that we found ourselves in Savannah, for instance, um, park was inherited by a grandson, and grandson lived locally, grew up in the park, knew the park, but didn't really understand what it was gonna take to just kind of have it operating at full capacity and full potential. So basically rent it to anybody with a pulse. Um, So we bought the park and we inherited a number of problematic tenants. Um, We had to try and work with them and just kind of clean the place up. So the value add component is usually acquiring a park that has some level of mismanagement um, and then capitalizing on those inefficiencies And again, you know, deploying the knowledge, experience, and capital that it takes to bring that park up to its full potential. So that's kind of what we're in the business of doing. Is and this isn't to say that we stray away from any type of larger institutional turnkey deals. Um, We do, and you know, we're, we're actively pursuing a few right now, but. We are primarily, I would say, as exemplified by our first two acquisitions in the business of converting trailer parks into manufactured housing communities. And you know, I would implore your listeners to, to take a glance at our deal in Savannah, because we've got a lot of before and afters out there on our social media. Um, that park was a, a, the definition of a trailer park. I mean, you know, whatever could have possibly gone wrong between collections, mismanagement, Uh, trailers in disrepair, drugs, crime, I mean, potholes, like you name it, you know, it was happening at that park. Um, It is no longer happening at that park. So that that is the value add, right? It's going in and it is deploying that knowledge and capital uh, that will bring the property up to its full potential.
1: Yeah, I think that's interesting because uh, I think it was Ryan Norris, I was speaking about this and it was you know you could you could spend a lot of money on a property but until you change the mindset of your residents you know you really you really haven't done much you know you need people that have a pride of ownership and a, a pride of where they live and you know i couldn't agree with you more you know it's it's not just you know spending money it's actually implementing and making changes uh, within your tenant base so totally
0: it's the broken window theory right and yeah. it works both ways In the same way that if you've got one broken window, probably a lot of other homes are going to have broken windows or are going to be in a state of disrepair. Once you get one tenant, one resident to start fixing up that home and to start actually taking care of their lot, it starts to be relatively contagious. Totally. Totally. Which is part of the reason um, the first thing we do on all of our acquisitions is we, we spend a lot of time renovating the office because we found that it is very difficult for us as new owners and managers to go around knocking on doors, handing out violation stickers when our own home is in disrepair for all intents and purposes. So the first thing we do post-close is we'll spend a week or two just getting the office up and running. We'll power wash it. We'll repaint it. Um, we'll clean out the interior. We'll get it nice and branded. We'll put up you know the name of the community, et cetera. Uh, just so that when we do go around um, and you know ask tenants to to start taking care of their lots, uh, we do have a nice baseline and example that that we can point them to.
1: Yeah, no, that's that's huge. I, I really like that. Do you guys uh, bring in brand new homes, and do you use that office as like a sales sales you know uh, what are they was a dealer office? Yeah. Um, as well? Okay.
0: Yeah, yeah, we, we do. We've got, uh, well, <laughs> they're, they're harder to come by these days with, with the cost of lumber um, going through the roof. But we did bring in a couple brand new homes in Savannah, and we're actually teeing up an order for about five new homes right now uh, in Alabama. So we, yeah, our office essentially does serve as a leasing office, if, if you will, um, it's also our property manager's office, so we've got full-time community directors uh, at both parks. Um, one of them lives on site and the other one we have not hired yet, but she lives uh, locally in the market, so she's not far from the community. And that's essentially you know, where they can spend their days and where they can oversee the management and the operations of the park.
1: Wonderful. Can you tell me about the park owned home model? You know, so you, you said you don't mind it. Mm -hmm. Uh, like how many park owned homes, you know, do you keep, do you, do you plan on moving them all to lease options? Uh, or do you, uh, you know, plan to keep some of them as just straight rentals?
0: We, so the, the majority of, the, well, let, let me say something. We're, we're not really in the rental business. Um, we we are in the land lease community business. So these homes, you know, there might be a few, like for instance, if we get a tenant who, a prospective tenant who knocks on our door and says, hey, you know, I'm, I'm looking for a one bed, one bath, and I need it like yesterday. Um, do you guys have anything available? We'll We'll spruce up a unit um, we're not gonna go and invest you know ten thousand dollars into turning it, but we'll spruce it up and we'll get it you know up to code um, and we'll be very candid with the prospective tenant and just be like, look, you know we, we don't typically rent, but we do have some units available And what we'll usually do and instruct our community directors is if they have a good feel um, for a prospective tenant and they think that they'll make a good resident and they don't want to buy the home and you know we feel that, they will be a good tenant. Um, then we'll, we'll certainly try to get them into a rental. But I would say that ninety percent of our business is generated from LTOs and converting existing park-owned homes over to tenant-owned homes, okay. um, selling homes, bringing in new homes. So we we really want to get out of the rental model. And it, you know, again, that varies because there are certain markets where it's just heavy rental markets. So. Sure you know, you might have to have two maintenance managers instead of one. Um, but, you know, you, you can definitely make money
1: there as well. Totally. Okay, so you have an on site manager, and then you do have a full time or part time maintenance guy that helps. Yep. Okay.
0: Uh, yeah, at, at our park in Georgia, we have a full time community director. And then we have one, two, we've got two maintenance guys on site.
1: Okay. Yeah. I'm sure that comes in handy because there's always something on those, those homes, you know, it's nice to have a a nice handyman around. Yeah, exactly. With, with our previous interviews, when we interview operators, you know, a lot of them have said that, you know, the, the big, uh, you know, with value add infill projects have been one of the more difficult projects, you know, have you guys, how have you dealt with that? Uh, have you found any tips that make it easier, You know, are you only bringing in new homes or do you bring in used homes as well? Uh, Could you shed any light on the infill process that you guys have implored?
0: Yeah, totally. Um, I'd say it's a mix of both. We bring in brand new homes and we also try to partner up with retailers, um, local distributors, and any chance that we get, like I said, right now, it, it is pretty challenging to find used homes, quality used homes. Um, The cost of lumber has shot up over the last couple of months, mainly due to the fact that a lot of people um, are moving out to the suburbs. So A lot of single-family home builders um, are using a lot of lumber. That cost goes up, not to mention the fact that COVID has shut down a lot of these factories and um, these facilities that that build the mobile homes. Overall, you know, it is very difficult right now to locate and identify and even purchase uh, manufactured homes. I mean, the prices have jumped over the last couple of months. And a lot of these retailers are, are totally backlisted um, for months. I mean, I spoke to a guy, uh, I think it was like a Clayton retailer, and they're pretty much totally backed up until like July. Yeah. And, you know, that, that's it's November. I mean, that's crazy. Yeah. So, like I said, we do have a couple new home orders teed up, um, but we do need to get creative, obviously, and try to identify used homes that we can bring in. Uh, we'll usually try to shoot for something like two thousand five, two thousand six, and newer. We don't want to bring old homes into our parks, um, but it's it's become very important right now, more than ever, I think, to be creative on the infill process for sure.
1: Totally, totally, yeah. Just the value that you know an occupied lot adds is is huge. Um, you know, would you tell me on the deals that you guys do, do you guys invest money into your deals that you put together?
0: Yeah, of course. I I wouldn't, you know, if I put myself in the shoes of, and I have invested on the LP side, but if, if I were to do that um, as an LP investor, and if the GP didn't have any skin in the game, I just wouldn't feel comfortable. I mean, how you know, how are you incentivized to do a good job if you don't have your own money in the deal? So, we we 100% um, allocate and put in our, our own dollars into these deals, and it keeps everybody incentivized. It keeps everybody honest. Um, so, usually, we'll put about, you know, 10 to 20% of the equity uh, into these deals as the GP.
1: That's great. I always like to ask that because I, I agree with you as well. You want to have, you want to invest with operators that have skin in the game. Um, yeah, absolutely. Tell me, Luke, what's your end game goal? Where 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 are you gonna be, you know, down the line? Uh, you know, twenty years from now. Twenty years from now, um,
0: you know, we we I love manufactured housing, and if you had asked me that two or three years ago, I, I would have looked at you sideways. If you had told me that, you know, two years from now you're you're gonna be in love with manufactured housing communities, and you're just gonna want to keep acquiring them and operating them. Um, I would have looked at you sideways, but I, you know, I think that I have truly found my calling in doing what I'm doing, so I don't plan on going anywhere um, in terms of finding different assets to target. We're, we're laser-focused at Pioneer Communities on acquiring manufactured housing communities, so 20 years from now, um, you know, I envision us owning a whole lot more of these things, and I envision us providing the services that we provide to our tenants, to our investors on a much larger scale.
1: Fantastic, Luke. Is there anything else, maybe something that I didn't uh, ask you that you think would be valuable for the listeners to know about you guys over at Pioneer Communities? No, um, I,
0: I think I think you pretty much covered everything. Um, is there anything you think we left out?
1: No, I think I think you added a lot of value. So you know, thank you for for coming on the show. Uh, if any of our listeners want to get a hold of you, what is the best way for them to do so?
0: We're, we're pretty active. Um, we've got a website that they could go to, which is just pioneercommunities.com. Communities is plural. Uh, they could also find us on social media. We're, we're pretty active on Instagram, like you mentioned. So if you just do Pioneer Communities, the handle, so at Pioneer Communities, um, you could find us there. But your best bet would probably be reaching out to us directly from our website. All of our emails and cell phones are up there.
1: Awesome. Well, thanks again for coming on the show, Luke. Really appreciate it. Uh, That's it for today's show. Thank you all so much for joining us.
0: Thanks, guys. Thanks, Andrew.
1: Hey, are you getting value out of this show? If so, would you mind please going over to iTunes and leaving the show a quick five-star review? I have a goal of hitting over 100 five-star reviews by the end of 2021 and it would mean the absolute world to me if you could help contribute to that. Thanks ahead of time for making my day with your five-star review of the show.